everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rohrkraut. And today we have a fun episode planned for you. We will be diving into two Christmas releases, News of the World and Promising Young Woman. But before we get to that, we're going to be talking about some of the Critics Awards and discuss how the awards fantasy draft is going. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome back Bennett Prosser. Hello. Thanks for having me back. I saw last week that Ryan Lamb was on again and that he joined me in the two-time guest club. So I made sure that I was immediately (laughs) scheduled for the next episode so that I could reclaim my (laughs) crown. So thanks for having me back. And now the challenge is in Ryan's court. You're like Daniel Day-Lewis. You're in the three-time club That's right. Yeah. This morning, Meryl didn't even open the envelope. She just said, and the next guest is Bennett Prosser. Perfect Oscar reference. (laughs) (laughs) And since this is our last podcast for 2020, which is exciting, and we won't have another award ceremony until Gotham in January, I figured this would be a good point to talk about how each of our teams are doing, what the points are like, how we feel, what we thought might have gone better. Well, yeah. So I will start and I will say that, you know, right now I have zero points. And (laughs) obviously at the beginning, I would say expected to maybe be doing better, but I suffered the unfortunate fate of banking on the French Dispatch and Dune. And both of those were moved. Right now, we just have the New York and LA film critics wins and Gotham nominations. So I'm not out of it yet. We have tons of awards still to go. go, And I have faith that my picks will come through with the industry. So, you know, maybe I'm just like the 2016 New England Patriots and I will come back victorious. We will see. Sure. Uh, (laughs) I I believe you. I can't back up a sports reference, but I believe you. Um, Yeah, looking at your picks, I think that the things that you still have left in the race for Trial of Chicago 7, Netflix in general, your actors, you have Anthony Hopkins and Gary Oldman, which I think are definitely going to stick around, especially Hopkins. You have more picks that will probably resonate later on in the season. I think on the kind of flip side, I think I'm going to be pretty front-loaded in the points that I get and kind of expecting to taper off as it goes. Um, So my kind of strategy when we were picking them back in August was largely rooted in what had already come out and what I felt like was most Mm -hmm. likely still going to come out before the end of the year, before everything got pushed. The only pick that I've lost is West Side Story in film. I was hoping it would be a big craft win for me and then who knows about all the acting and directing and everything but otherwise I feel like we've seen in the early critics awards that they have been paying more attention to the films that were released earlier on in the year maybe more so than they typically might when we get just the glut of holiday Oscar prestige films coming out because so many of those were moved that you get films like First Cow and Never Rarely Sometimes Always and Defive Bloods that that have been kind of where my points have come from but I don't necessarily expect when we shift to the industry awards just based on historical patterns for those to get as many points i'm holding out hope i think that all of those movies are great and i would love for them to get points aside from the draft but i have a feeling that as we shift towards industry awards i'm gonna start losing steam as sophia picks up the pace one thing i will say though looking at your list is that so i saw news of the world yesterday and tom hanks i really do think that people are going to respond to this performance especially in the industry so i think that that was a really good pickup for you i also think your two movies that you have even though we love to make fun of tenant i think has a lot of potential 
potential to pick up some below the line support mm-hmm. so visual effects mm. maybe even sound, sound which score. is so crazy yeah. score i love that score so i think that's a good one and i also i mentioned last week that with defive bloods i'm wondering if netflix will change their strategy up a little bit and will put more support on this one even though it was a june release after seeing how it's been doing with the critics mm-hmm. and i think they should and you've mentioned chadwick boseman's possible double nomination we talked about this last week on the pod and i think it's likely i think it's deserved and talking about some of your other picks bennett i think alexandra byrne could be a shoe-in for emma which you'll be happy to know i finished last night and oh, gave it an extra half star <sighs> so <laughs> did not like it. We're up to two and a half stars. How many tries did it take? It was probably five tries. Yeah. (laughs) Well, okay. I'm I'm thankful that you are seeing the at least her work coming through. I will say Mia Goth kind of pulled it through for me and Miranda Hart, who I've loved for years and years. And I think she ended up having one of the best roles in the film. So one thing really quick about Emma, I wouldn't be surprised if after everything we've seen with The Queen's Gambit and how successful that was on Netflix, if Anya Taylor-Joy gets nominated for actress in a comedy or musical. Yeah. I think so. How many people watch The Queen's Gambit and it's very globesy. But for Alexandra Byrne, I think that was a pick where I felt confident early on that she would make it through to the end. But maybe I wasn't thinking very strategically in that how many of these awards are going to have costume design categories in our draft, that there's just going to be fewer cases Mm -hmm. for her to be awarded. Well, it won it, the Chicago Critics, and... I think with some of your other ones, I'm thinking of ending things as one in editing and multiple screenplay categories, which mm-hmm. you have Charlie Kaufman for. So I think that's great. Nick, talk about your picks and how you're wildly ahead of both of us. Looking back, I'm very happy with some of the picks I made and especially Minari in that it has made the traction that I hoped it would have had. And Chloe Zhao, I knew Searchlight was going to be a big contender in the race. And I'm just glad this film has been loved by so many. And the next question is, are Chloe Zhao and Nomadland just the critics darling or will they be also an industry contender? I mean, as much as like I don't want you to win the draft, I think that like Chloe Zhao and Nomadland, I mean, I, I love Nomadland so much and I'm rooting for her to go all the way. I think also looking at your movies, what's interesting is that you have Mank and Hillbilly <laughs> Elegy for Netflix. And I'm going to sound crazy this whole entire episode, but I think it is possible for Hillbilly Elegy to get some love from certain members of the Academy. So you might get some luck there too, in addition to however Mank plays. I'm curious with Minari if it will suffer the same fate as The Farewell. And we'll get to why that is, but I'm curious if that will really just be critics and independent spirit. Sophia, you're mentioning that Hillbilly Elegy doing maybe better than we expected in Academy screenings and other industry circles. I was going to say, looking at all of our actress picks for the draft, that we whiffed pretty hard, at least mm-hmm. seemingly so far. <laughs> so <laughs> we have Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan from Ammonite, which it sounds like Kate Winslet could be kind of cuspy. We'll see kind of how that goes going forward. But that movie really died once it was shown and then yeah. released. It really did, yeah. Um, we have... Glenn Close and Amy Adams for Hillbilly Elegy. It seems like Glenn still is, there are people just assuming. Yeah. She's the only sliver of hope left. I think Glenn might win. <laughs> a globe? An Oscar. Oh, I... If she doesn't have a major uh... competitor coming up, 
It seems like Glenn's major competition is maybe Amanda Seyfried, maybe Maria Bakalova. If Glenn loses to Maria Bakalova, I will lose my mind that would be as a Glenn fan. <laughs> I think that's going to be the question is, what, a couple of years ago, it was assumed that she would win. She didn't really seem to have steep competition that people could rally around. Um, little did we know that Olivia Coleman was surging at the right time, or mm-hmm. people just assumed that Glenn would win, so they didn't vote for her. So if maybe the sting from that that loss will carry over into this year to boost her up if she's in the same situation mm-hmm. where she doesn't have a competitor. But what if when the father comes out in February and Olivia Coleman sneaks in and steals all of the glory from Glenn Close and takes supporting actress again? I think that would be wild. It's possible. Olivia was incredible in The Father and it's a better movie. And then I still stand by Elizabeth Moss in The Invisible Man. I know it's not going to happen I think that performance is great, so I'm glad I picked it anyway. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's getting anywhere <laughs> for that or for Shirley. And then, Nick, your choice of Jennifer Hudson got bumped to next year. Yeah. My other one that I had hoped would have done better, maybe, and maybe still could, is Regina King as director. I still don't know if she's going to get into a Best Director nomination at the Oscars, because I think that's a pretty tight race right now. But she came runner-up at the Indiana Critics, which happened recently. I think that might have been the only one, though. So points-wise, so Sophia's at zero, Bennett's at 14, and I am at 28. So we're all 14 points away from each other. Yeah, but I also don't know where we're going to end up. That's kind of the fun thing, too, is like we don't know the end point. Right. And I think, too, we have so many strange awards coming up, like the WGA and the PGA and DGA, awards like that, where Mm -hmm. there are very few opportunities to pick up points. Mm -hmm. Like it really is just those individual categories or your movies. So let's get into some highlights from Critics Awards, just generally how things have gone. Chloe Zhao is cleaning up with the critics for Best Director. She has won everything so far. I'm very happy about that. Just as a viewer, apart from this awards draft, I've loved her since I saw The Rider, which was only a couple years ago, but her vision is just extraordinary. And her trajectory from Critics Darling into potential Best Director winner this year and maybe even picture is so rapid and I am absolutely here for it. So Nomadland has picked up Best Film prizes. So is First Cow. The biggest head-scratcher win for Best Film, though, came out of L.A. when they decided to give Best Film to Small Axe. Not just Lover's Rock or Mangrove, but Mm -hmm. Small Axe. The umbrella term, small X. Well, so I've seen all five. I have seen four of them. I still need to watch the last one for next week's episode when we do our top fives of the year. I'm trying to finagle away where I can cheat and maybe be like LA and just say small X for one. And I think we need to be talking more about how we have five Steve McQueen films that you can watch on Prime. Right, because Amazon's not doing the work of letting you know that there are five Steve McQueen films on Prime. It's really just no. people finding it on their own. He's calling it a series very specifically and not entering it into film awards competition, which is just so interesting. So I've seen three of them so far. I'm trying to space them out because they are intense, but I love what McQueen is doing. Each one is different. I'm glad that they awarded it to all of them. And it's also won some of the cinematography awards, both individually and collectively. And Steve McQueen is just like a genius filmmaker. There's no way around it. I love the detail that he puts into every single shot. And I think that's what's so enjoyable. I agree. I think that we're 
really lucky this year, especially that we were able to get five discrete but thematically related films from Steve McQueen about a specific culture, the West Indies and Caribbean immigrant culture in London in the 60s and 70s, the stories that are not regularly told, and that we're able to see all five of these films from our homes. Steve McQueen has said that part of his deal with BBC and then Amazon in the States was that he wanted his mom to be able to watch these films at home. This whole situation with all five small acts films is just the latest version of filmgoers trying to draw a line between television and film and trying to maintain a line that has existed for decades, but a line that is disappearing as we go along year by year. I think the pandemic has really exacerbated that. And I think especially since the LA awards have come out, the conversation kind of shifted to, is this one film or are these five films that we're not even questioning if it's TV anymore? That's at least in the background. (laughs) I don't know how I feel about it, whether they're TV or, or film, but I'm fine with them getting that award. I think this year of any year, go crazy, mix it up. And then just quickly looking at other critics, awards, categories. So just with actor Chadwick Boseman, Delroy Lindo, and Anthony Hopkins have all picked up awards here with critics. And then with actress, Sydney Flanagan, at least for me, was the big surprise here for Never Rarely, Sometimes Always mm-hmm. winning some critics awards, which I think is an inspired, really wonderful choice. And then also Frances McDormand and Carrie Mulligan. Which we'll get to later on today and could really shake up the industry conversation. Let's move into talking about the Golden Globes, everyone's favorite chaotic awards moment. Last week, we got out of variety that there have been some major changes to this year's Globes as it pertains to categories and eligibility. Per the HFPA rules, after all the studios submit their entries in numerous categories, which are split between drama, comedy, lead supporting, an initial committee reviews the submissions. And according to the official rules, members can then vote to accept the studio's submission, requiring a two-thirds vote to overturn. So when we talk about changes, that's kind of why these things happen. So people submit things into certain categories, and then the HFPA can accept those or reject them. This isn't a very large majority. I mean, we're talking about a voting body, but it's only like 80 people, right? Yeah, it would Mm -hmm. shake out to be about like, I would say upper 50s or 60-ish people voting to overturn. And the first one they overturned was that Promising Young Woman, which again, we'll get to, was switched from comedy to drama. Like me, the Hollywood Foreign Press finds Promising Young Woman tonally confusing. So, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a satire and dark humor, yeah, but... I guess it's tough. It kind of toes the line, which is great. And this might end up hurting its final chances of winning things based on how many dramas there are this year. But to me, I'm okay with this decision. I think if Carrie Mulligan can crack drama at the Globes for actress, that means it's a really serious contender, I think, for Oscars. Mm -hmm. And she has a lot of momentum going forward. I guess I just have no clue whether or not the Hollywood Foreign Press will go for this movie. Well, so my thought process behind why all these changes are being released now, is it because if they're pining for these movies because they want them in certain categories so they're a better fit, or if they're getting these films out of the way because they want another winner in those initial categories where they're like, okay, we don't want this to be an issue. And the fact that two-thirds of this body is voting this way is this you know, how they're going to vote in the end. Because nominations come out in early February. So I wonder if we're also going to be getting other changes before then. 
I think we will. They've already said, for example, that for One Night in Miami, the four actors that the studio wanted to split into lead and supporting, they said that they will not be splitting them. They will go in one category. They just haven't revealed if it'll be lead or supporting yet. Right. And there must be a deadline whenever the voting period begins. So this was probably just the first big round of changes. It sounds like they hit most of what had been submitted so far. But Nick, it sounds like maybe what you were wondering or or asking was, is it purely just looking at the film and its qualities and seeing whether I think it truly fits into one category or the other, or is it Mm -hmm. more strategic? Yeah, exactly. I always think of the strategic mind belonging to the studio and the marketing team who puts these movies forward for awards. So a marketing team for Promising Young Woman thinks Emerald called this a dark comedy. She called it a satire. It's a comedy. We should run it there because it might, you know, have a better chance of winning awards in comedy. But then the Hollywood Foreign Press's strategy is the opposite Mm -hmm. like is that something that could happen i don't know it's interesting between the different awards bodies how they handle things the globes decides where uh, performers and films are eligible for sag awards it is solely based on what the studio submits them as and what the actors submit themselves as and then the oscars is just wherever the chips fall in terms of uh, lead and supporting roles (laughs) so it's interesting that we could see particularly on the actor side them falling into different categories throughout the season so i think another big change that I think is the most unfortunate one is that Minari will not be competing in the best picture categories and instead will be considered in the foreign language film category. Steven Yoon will be eligible for best actor in a drama, but the film itself is not eligible for best drama. Which is upsetting and... A lot of people have been vocal about this, especially on Twitter. I know mm-hmm. Lulu Wong has had some strong opinions, which I also agreed with. And mm-hmm. I'm hoping that it has a better chance this year because the farewell was overshadowed by Parasite. I'm hoping Minari has better chances based on what I've seen internationally or foreign language wise. It's so upsetting considering just after seeing Minari, this is just such an incredible American story. And the fact that the Golden Globes sees something like Inglorious Bastards as eligible for Best Picture when a majority of that film is in German, but can't see Minari as eligible or American is just terrible. There clearly haven't been any rule changes for that category in the time since this happened last time. So maybe the uproar from this year will help push the HFPA to amend the rule or figure out how, how it should work. I have a feeling we'll be talking about this next one quite a bit coming up, but Maria Bakalova, the breakout of Borat subsequent movie film, was moved from supporting actress to lead actress in a comedy musical. <laughs> How do you all feel about Maria, this movie, this change? So I haven't seen Borat subsequent movie film yet. I have never seen the original Borat, and I plan to watch both of them before. You're in for a double feature. I I, I, I'm gonna, I don't know if I should watch them back to back or space them out. No, you can't. No, space them (laughs) out. out. It's really hard, I think, because I had never seen Borat either, and I tried watching it this year, and the humor was just so outdated that it was really hard to make it through. And this one, I enjoyed watching much more, the sequel. So I think doing them on different days would be better. Well, I know I'll need to be strategic when I watch them because I'm not allowed to watch them while my boyfriend's home. He has put a kibosh (laughs) 
I actually need to hide it from him. So he'll listen to this and know my strategy. Um, but it, in terms of Maria Bakalova, just sight unseen, my understanding is she got all of the buzz and a lot of attention after it. And it seems like maybe it is more of a two-hander of a film than the original was. It sounds fine to me, but I haven't seen it. Nick, what do you think? Borat in general is very much a mood and it's a lot to take in at once. I think I had to split this up too, just because it was overwhelming. I didn't see her as a lead in this film. And this goes back to my conversation last week about lead and supporting. But I think this specifically will hurt her chances in being included. At the Globes or at the Oscars? I would say at the Oscars, mostly. I think Globes that she could still get in. And it'll be interesting if she gets in and not Sydney Flanagan. I do think that the amount of attention that Maria got after the film came out, and then the fact that her move from supporting to lead in a comedy is news and something that people are paying attention to, I think it would be shocking if she does not get a Globe nomination. And I think my conversation of yes, Globes and not Oscars is that, you know, at the Oscars, they combine comedy and drama. And at the Globes, they're separate. So I think she has a better chance with a list of comedy nominees versus drama because drama is so stacked this year. I will say, though, what could happen at the Oscars, she could pull an Abigail Breslin in Little Miss Sunshine, who was moved to lead at the Globes Mm. and go supporting at the Oscars because that category is less stacked. That's the only way she makes it, which is possible. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing with Borat that we have to consider is that Sasha Baron Cohen could have two Golden Globe nominations. He could have one in lead for comedy musical and that for Borat and then one for supporting for trial of the Chicago (laughs) seven this year. This is too much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we still have another big one. So this is our last big change we're going to talk about, but Hamilton was accepted in the comedy musical categories. Lin-Manuel Miranda and Leslie Odom Jr. will run and lead and the others will be considered in supporting. Ryan Murphy was probably just... (laughs) I'm okay with this. Once this initially came out, people were like, oh, will this be up for awards? And the Oscars were like, absolutely not. So to see it have this revival after the impact that it had earlier this summer, I think it's great. I just like, it's won. It's already won so many awards. Like Hamilton has won so many Tonys. Why does it need Golden Globes for a performance from five years ago? I'm not disparaging the performances. I think they're wonderful, but it's already won a lot of awards. This feels like Globes being Globes. Mm -hmm. Just wanting to throw it in there because if it gets more nominations, which I think we all think it will, that if Hamilton gets nominated, you're going to get a lot more theater people to watch the Globes than they would if they aren't into TV and film. So that we know of, are there any other filmed stage performances that are included? Hamilton was the big news, but you know, throughout the year, there are other filmed stage mm-hmm. performances released. Is Heidi Schreck going to be eligible for what the Constitution means to me? Is David Byrne going to be eligible for his concert film? Where is that mm-hmm. line drawn? Or is it just Globes being the Globes and they're proudly saying that Hamilton is possible? I'm all for David Byrne. I'm a total hypocrite here. I just, I think like this is just Hollywood Foreign Press wants Lin-Manuel Miranda and Hamilton and this huge audience. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's not like they're not worthy. It's just strange because it's it's such an old performance like it's the original cast and they just happened to release it this year maybe the strategy of moving promising young woman from comedy to drama they wanted promising young woman to get in so let's get her over yeah let's make room for hamilton and get promising young woman nominations in drama we'll see we will see So our first film is News of the World, directed by Paul Greengrass. You'll know him from United 93, 22 July, 
Captain Phillips, Green Zone, some of the Bourne films. And it stars Tom Hanks and Helena Zengel. It's about a Civil War veteran who agrees to deliver a girl taken by the Kiowa people years ago to her aunt and uncle against her will. They travel hundreds of miles and face grave dangers as they search for a place that either can call home. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Captain Jefferson Kyle Kidd, and I'm here tonight to read the news from across this great world of ours. understand English? Dolly, I call but, uh... Friend. Says your name is Johanna Leonberger. Indians took you when they attacked your family six years prior. Your mother, father, and sister were... Well, they passed. I was just... This is not the right thing to say, but incredibly bored by this movie. <laughs> so for you, it was nap of the world. Yes. <laughs> I texted you after I saw this yesterday and said, just got out of Oscar bait of the world is what I decided to call it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that stands true. Does that mean I didn't like it? No, I actually did really like it. I wasn't bored by it, but I understand like why you would be. I think too, watching it at home would be more challenging, but I think mm-hmm. that what I really liked about this was that the two actors that are at the center of it, Tom Hanks being one of them, they really work. I also loved the scenes where Tom Hanks is sharing the news, which of course, like I was just the whole time thinking like, oh my gosh, what if this is how we got our news today instead of checking Twitter every 10 minutes. But Mm. in one of the scenes we see He reads a paper from this town in Pennsylvania about these coal miners. And you see the people in this town in the South, so it's Reconstruction era, and how they are connecting with this story and how it makes them want to rise up against the leader of their town. And it's just moments like that where you get to see Tom Hanks really shine that worked for me as a viewer. How did you feel? I think it checks all the boxes. It wants to do so many different things. I can kind of understand what things are, but why did he have to be reading news to these communities? Why did he have to leave home and his relationship with his wife be so mysterious at first? Helena's character, she's more than just a nine-year-old or whatever she is, but to have to remind the audience that she's a kid, I think was overdone because I think she is a strong character that was taken from home by these people and she's now formed a bond with and to make her like screaming and shouting and you know trying to get away from him but also the oversimplification of Tom Hanks just taking her in and being like come with me you know I'm I'm a good person and they don't speak each other's language but apparently they do because she knows a little bit of German and that's what he tries in the beginning to speak to her in and then it comes back later and they can talk to each other it just like went all over the place for me and I was just not enamored by it at the beginning for me at least I had this idea like, oh no, are they trying to make it seem like the Native Americans are bad and that, you know, you need to trust this Tom Hanks character because he's this like white white guy. But then it kind of does flip it a little bit where you could see that like she actually did connect with the Native Americans who originally took her from her family and that the settlers themselves are the villains, not the Native Mm -hmm. Americans. So I thought that that was interesting how it kind of flipped that around and changed your expectations of maybe where it was going. I think that just overall, though, it's a pretty standard Western 
I called it Oscar bait for a reason because I think that it is. I think one thing too with Paul Greengrass that he does, he uses a lot of almost like documentary like filmmaking techniques where the camera will be really shaky and it's emotional. It worked on me. It wasn't my favorite of the year. I'm probably never going to watch it again, but I think that a lot of viewers will really connect with it. I think that storm scene is both the best and worst part of this movie. (laughs) So Tom Hanks plays Captain Kidd and Helena plays Joanna, which is something else that I really hated is that along the way, Captain Kidd finds his friend who can translate what the girl is saying. And she says that her name is Cicada. And he's like, no, your name is Joanna. That's what I'm naming you. And it was like, oh, so now you can call people whatever they want. I'm assuming Cicada is the name that the tribe gave her and he was trying Mm -hmm. to separate her trauma and trying to give her a new future and a new name Mm -hmm. which I get but he didn't do it in the right way at all so in going back to this scene I think that is the worst part is that he's yelling out Joanna through the sandstorm as if she's gonna hear him in these like (laughs) crushing winds he's calling out I thought that was ridiculous but then also at the end of this is when they meet the tribe and the tribe helps these two out. And I think that was the most special moment in this film. Mm-hmm. Well, I think too, like one big part of the story is that they both have these traumatic pasts that they're connected to and disconnected from. And they're trying mm-hmm. to like forge ways on to a new future. She's a child who suffered serious trauma being orphaned twice and doesn't mm-hmm. know how to move on because she's a child. So I think that's why they emphasize that a lot. So she needs him maybe to get her there and I think with him too with losing his wife and I mean his job of reading the news he's this peripatetic lost soul he doesn't want to cling to anything because he can't anymore he tries to and he acts like he does but his way of sharing other people's stories with people he doesn't know that's his way I think of avoiding his past and avoiding a future and just not attaching himself to anything so his relationship with this girl is his way of actually connecting with something which he does not do again not my favorite film of the year by any means but I think that is why he can't move on from his past and why this relationship this bond between the two characters is the way forward for both of them which I get and I see that now and that's great but I think using (laughs) that as the only plot is somewhat superficial because probably before halfway you can tell that okay this relationship is what's going to change him and his future and while they're riding in their wagon you already know how it's going to end yeah I mean westerns are not unpredictable you know that they're going to have each other in the end from minute five I just wanted something more unexpected. If we're going to make a Western, you've got to do something to it. You know, with True Grit 10 years ago, you know, we talked about this on our 2010s pod. It remakes the film, but also in a new way. And I think that's what I wanted from this and didn't get it. And it was just like, you know, going to be pleasing to the 55 plus theater audience. Like you said, Oscar Bate. and. (laughs) I don't disagree. I mean that at all. okay, and that's why I don't like it. End of discussion. <laughs> I'm just like clawing at its merits of like just picking mm-hmm. up on the little things that I did like. But speaking of the 55 and over crowd and me calling it Oscar bait, I think that it has a good chance of doing well in awards. I think especially Tom Hanks. If Tom Hanks gets nominated for Best Actor at the Oscars, I'm going to scream because there are so many other performances that I want. I have my five blocks. Okay, but I just don't think 
we can put that much faith in the Academy. We can't, but I'm I'm trying. Do you think we can really get Riz, Stephen, Delroy, well, and Chadwick? So my thing is, you know, Stephen and Riz are at the bottom. But if we don't get one, we're getting Gary. And if we don't get two, we might get Tom. So I'm okay with Gary being there because that is how the Academy is. But I'm not okay with Tom being there because that means you have two snubs and that is horrible. And Tom in this movie to me was just like this personable guy and he's such a human being and you know that is who he is in movies now. That was him in Greyhound. Let me be clear again like I really I want Riz Ahmed to win Best Actor. His performance is my favorite of the year but I just don't have faith in the Academy to pick all of these incredible young performers of color. I don't expect it to happen. And I think that when you have someone like Tom Hanks, who I would not say at all is playing against type, this is very Tom Hanks, but in a solid performance that I think a lot of people will connect to that will vote, I am just saying I can see it happening. And I'm preparing us now as a group for when that happens. It sounds like, Nick, what you're saying is that this is another case where Tom, his roles are leaning hard into his America's yeah, dad. Exactly. Uh, yeah sort of vibe like Captain Phillips before and Sully and this and even a beautiful day in the neighborhood where he's kind of yeah. leaning hard into this yeah. like man who's there to take power and save the day. He's okay. very much in this movie, the guy who hosted the first SNL pandemic performance. This is that Tom Hanks. Which totally fits into his his narrative. That's why I also wouldn't be surprised if Paul Greengrass finds a spot in Best Director. Just like the acting category with director, is it will we get two women mm-hmm. director nominees this year? And that obviously hasn't happened. I think it's like five total women nominees. And then Catherine Bigelow won and she's the mm-hmm. only woman director who won. Yeah. So we know Zhao is a shoo-in and hopefully a win. But the other part is will Regina King get in? But again, we have these women who are making just like incredible films this year. Their films are doing so well with critics. First Cow, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, Promising Young Woman. We have so many movies made by women this year. And what I'm just saying, again, doom and gloom over here. Not going to be shocked if we see Paul Greengrass (laughs) and Aaron Sorkin in The Five. Yeah. Or Florian Zeller for The Father. The potential awards life that The Father could have. I'm so curious to see how that will go. And he's won some of the Critics Awards for Best First Film. And then another awards possibility for this film. I talked about the score last week. I Mm -hmm. think that has a lot of potential. And probably cinematography. Those are the big ones. I wouldn't be surprised if editing got in there. I hope screenplay doesn't. Picture? What do you think? I will be ready for that. I'll be ready for this to be in picture. It feels like something we'll learn Mm-hmm. When we get closer to the industry awards, I don't think critics are going for no. news of the world, but it seems like a big, a big film that'll score well, like you said, with the older crowd. I don't know. I'm just saying I'm not going to be shocked. And I just want everyone to be prepared. We're in the lovely critics warm glow of when things are going our way right now. And that will end soon. <laughs> Every week I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? One, two, three, four. I thought we had a connection. Okay. How old am I? What are my hobbies? What's my name? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. 
So Promising Young Woman is the directorial debut from Emerald Fennell. It stars Carrie Mulligan, Bo Burnham, Jennifer Coolidge, Laverne Cox, and others. If you haven't seen a trailer or seen it yet, the description here from IMDb, a young woman traumatized by a tragic event in her past seeks out vengeance against those who cross her path going to give a warning here since this has very limited availability right now it is in theaters but if you haven't seen this please I would say watch the movie before listening to this podcast because we will be spoiling key events I don't think you want them spoiled because the ending especially if you go into it blind is much better yeah I will say on second viewing a lot of the intensity and excitement from not knowing what was going (laughs) to happen was a little bit taken away which is kind of how I felt on Rewatching 1917 last year. I am in no way comparing those two movies. I was going to say, whoa. But (laughs) it is such a rush to see this for the first time. And I will adore that experience and those moments. But I will say I still loved it on second watch. There's so much to talk about. And I've been very curious on how you felt about this. So I want to hear your initial thoughts and if we felt the same or not. Okay. So when I watched this, I was a little worried. I would say for a good Mm -hmm. portion of it. Because for me, as most listeners know by now, I like long, slow, drawn out pieces that tonally work and that have a lot of conflict in them. I love thrillers. So when all of these things were coming at me at once, I was like, okay, this is a little too much. It's not working for me in the way that I hoped it would. And then this will shock some people, I think, who've seen it because the ending does not work for a lot of people. But the ending did really work for me. And when this big climactic moment in the third act happened, I was like, oh, of course it works. And I did feel this sense of catharsis that I do seek that I don't get a lot. So I really did enjoy that. And I really appreciate what it was trying to do because it hasn't even been 24 hours since I've seen it yet. I'm not sure if I fully unpacked how well it did in accomplishing some of those things because I think I found it to be a little confused at parts in what it was trying to accomplish. But overall, it did work for me. I am recommending this movie to every woman in my life. I have texted so many of them that you need to see this <laughs> when it comes out and do not read anything about it before you go into it. And Bennett, how did you feel? So I also saw this yesterday and I would say I felt very similarly to Sophia, but it never clicked in and made sense to me. I don't enjoy saying that, especially because I know, Nick, how much you love it. It was one of those films where I knew that people's response to it had been that it is very bold and very provocative. And then I opened up Letterboxd to see what kind of the average rating was and was like, oh no, I am far (laughs) off the consensus here. It is not as polarizing as I thought, at least the people that I follow and respect and typically have some alignment with. This was a film that I give it a lot of credit for its point of view and the story that it was telling and, and really going like full force in plenty of directions. But I don't think that the filmmaking itself was up to the task of the bold directions that it took. And that largely came in from the wild tonal shifts that I don't think were successful throughout the movie as it went along. It actually, it reached a point where maybe about halfway through, I realized that this was supposed to be a thriller. Other than what she was doing, there was nothing about the mood or the way it was shot or kind of the pacing of the dialogue and the screenplay that was telling me that this was a thriller. I will say probably the one problem I had with it is in how it laid out what it was going to do and that we learn about things pretty slowly and it never amounts to as much as I 
expected, I guess. I didn't know anything going into this initially, except that it was like revenge porn. And we know she's Cassie, and then we learn about Nina's name, but we never really know what happened until she goes into Dean Walker's office. So up to that moment, we're given clues as to, oh, this terrible, traumatic incident happened in the past. And I guess the exposition of everything took so long. It was just kind of felt weird in how it was presented to the audience. Because then at another point earlier on, Jennifer Coolidge, who Who is amazing, (laughs) her presence was amazing. But even (laughs) she was part of the exposition and like, this is your 30th birthday. How do you forget about your 30th birthday? So then we kind of understand where her character is and that she's living at home. But literally the first second of the movie, we're still in title credits right now. Mm -hmm. We're seeing who the production companies are. And you hear Charlie XCX's boys playing. And I lost my mind. I was like, I was laughing so hard. During and then that. you see the first shot of this flat butt of these guys dancing on this dance floor. I laughed so hard. Initially, when I saw this at home, I paused and I was like, oh, my God, I need a minute. This is hilarious. <laughs> because when it starts, it's like an extreme close up of this like yes. flat butt. Oh and it God. seems like with the lighting and the music <laughs> that they're at this rave. And then it zooms out and it's just a small collection of men on yes. the stage at this sad corporate oh, bar event. <laughs> just like so fitting and perfect that morning after She's walking home and she has like this blood, which is jam splattered against her leg and her shirt and her arm. And she looks over and it's Rain and Men is playing and she's centered across this backdrop of this junkyard and she sees these construction workers who are portrayed as the village people and just the stereotype of them catcalling her and she stares at them so uncomfortably that you know they start swearing at her and saying what's your problem and that was also another moment for me it was like wow I understand at least where Emerald is trying to go and I am 100% here for that and in this moment of the morning also Margot Robbie's name as a producer flashes on the screen and I'm like okay wow this is so interesting. So one thing I want to touch on quickly, Bennett, you said, I realized this was supposed to be a thriller and it wasn't. And Nick, you said revenge porn. I kind of wanted revenge porn and I feel like I didn't get any of it. Mm -hmm. Like I wanted, this is, crazy to say but like I wanted blood like I wanted the gone girl box cutter and Amy hitting her head with the (laughs) hammer like I I wanted that and I didn't get it and with the tonal Mm -hmm. shifts I struggled a lot through the beginning but then what I kind of am thinking of now as I'm processing it is that this character that she's created I wanted her to be an Amy Dunn but she is not an Amy Dunn because she is struggling with I think something that a lot of survivors struggle with which is you know she wants to exact revenge on people but she can't go there and she wants to like have a normal relationship but she can't go there all the way she has all these things that she's sorting through so I think that maybe what Emerald Fennel is trying to do is to show that internal struggle that women have of you know wanting to forgive and wanting revenge and wanting to move forward and wanting to deal with past demons and not being able to find a clear path and a clear answer forward to do that and I think that is very thought-provoking and very provocative but I'm just not sure I guess how well that works in a film I think she was trying to just not villainize Carrie Mulligan's character because if she were to like kill these men that would almost be like crossing the line does that make sense 
Yeah, but can I get into a plot point here? One plot point that I really, really struggled with when I watched it where I was like, okay, what she chooses to do is not go fully into the villain category and like kill these men, but to get Alison Bree's character drunk and like give money to this man and like try to trick us into mm-hmm. this way of thinking that she's putting Alison Bree's character, another woman, in this situation that she's supposedly trying to protect other women from. That like just did not sit well with me and took me a minute to kind of get over and move forward as I was watching the film. That was also the biggest problem that I had with it was ex- exactly that. The scene with Alison Brie where she's getting her drunk and I thought it was going to end with just getting her drunk so she's kind of loose and, and so Carrie can kind of verbally accost her and and just kind of berate her and make her feel bad mm-hmm. for her past actions. And then she goes and pays the man who we don't know who he is, we don't know what this deal is, but to do something and walks away and the scene ends. And she has enacted her revenge. And I don't think that there's any indication to the audience that Alison Brie wasn't raped. Especially, yes, later on when Allison, like, confronts Carrie Mulligan about it because she hasn't been sleeping and everything like that. And she's like, no, he didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, this film's whole... An but also, this later. film's whole thesis is, like, you can't trust men. Men are trash. How do we know he's telling the truth? I was even stuck on her intentions with that. This goes back to the tonal shifts and kind of how the audience is supposed to be treating Cassie. I lost any sympathy I had because we don't know until an hour later where she says, oh, no, don't worry that nothing happened. That entire hour, I was like, Cassie, what are you, like, how am I supposed to feel about you when, when you did this? And and maybe the provocation of the whole conceit and of the movie is, is supposed to make the audience feel very uncomfortable and, and think about these things, but it really took me out. See, I saw this completely differently because I think I understood what she was doing. She lays the scene out pretty well in that Cassie first asks if Madison's feelings have changed about the matter, or she does it when she's drunk. But either way, before she enacts her revenge, revenge on her because Madison feels like oh we were just so young we were children that if she had said it the opposite way that she was like oh I totally understand what happened now and it was completely wrong she wouldn't have done what she did but since Madison didn't change she's like okay I'm gonna make you feel that guilt that Nina felt in thinking that you were mistreated by a guy and she paid this guy to just put Madison in a room and to like wake up with him in a corner and to make her feel like oh my god did something happen to me the whole time I knew that unassumingly so that that was all just set up to make Madison feel guilty yes and like maybe so but I think my issue with it just is if what this film is saying is that And it has, I think, many things that it's trying to say. One of those big things is that you cannot trust men as a woman. If you are drunk or in a vulnerable situation, men will take advantage of you. And I think when those two things are at the center of the film, how does Cassie know that this man that she pays will not do anything to Alison Brie's character? We don't know that. And she doesn't either. So for her to say Mm. that, like, nothing happened because I just wanted you to feel afraid, like... Her making her feel guilt and feel fear because she didn't change her opinions is like a level of cruel that was new to me as a viewer, especially for someone who like, I couldn't tell if she was supposed to be this revenge thriller villain or not. And then she does that. I think that's like the most evil thing she does the entire movie. But I think we know this in the same way that later on she hires a hitman to kill the lawyer, but then ends up backing out because he apologizes for 
what happened, which I also thought was a little simplified. But I also agree in that we could have had a little bit more backstory in how she is hiring these men to do these tasks because I see where you're coming from and that, you know, two lines of backstory here in knowing who this man at the restaurant was would have helped a lot. But the thing is, is like not even because again, this film is saying you cannot trust men around drunk women as part of its thing. And it's it's saying that even if this guy was a good guy, the good guys are the ones you don't trust. It's not the villainous hitman who's going to do the dirtiest thing. It's the nice guy. That was something that was challenging for me. I do think that the theme of forgiveness in the film is very interesting. Emerald has said in interviews how she thinks that this film is about forgiveness. And just a lot of times like people want to be forgiven, but they can't do the work to apologize and own up to what they did that was wrong. And in the case of the lawyer he you know said I can't sleep at night I have all this guilt but at the same time like he says that and he admits to his wrongdoing but he wants Cassie to absolve him of that and it further drives home the point that was particularly icky for me and I think it works but it just made me feel like ill as a woman again why do we have to be the ones to teach men not to behave this way Mm -hmm. because she's doing that and then yes like she goes and tells the hitman not to do it okay then again we have an issue because okay so she tells this guy not to do something because the lawyer said he was sorry but Allison Bree didn't say she was sorry so how do we know this other guy didn't do anything because that doesn't match the Alfred Molina lawyer scene was also tonal whiplash so I would love to talk about Bo Burnham's character because I think that what Emerald did here is just honestly incredible because this character is I think really well written for what women encounter and the type of guy who eventually brings your guard down. The writing of him I thought had a lot of nuance and was spot on because he's someone from her past who she seems to have known but like not super well so he doesn't carry a lot of baggage. He has a good career and even though he snubs the fact that she's working at a coffee shop at the beginning he like does this quirky thing where he lets her spit in his coffee and then drinks it so he like brings his guard down he has great sense of humor when he talks about how he's like tall and goofy and awkward all of these things just for me I was like oh my god one thing that she talks about in her interviews that I thought was so fascinating was in this honestly amazing needle drop that I just really when it happened I just like felt my soul exit my body when they're in the drugstore and (laughs) stars are blind starts playing she said in an interview Mm -hmm. when she was choosing songs if a guy knew all the words to a certain song like what song would that be to make me just like fully be into him and it was stars are blind (laughs) wow it's perfect and does that track for you sophia that if a straight guy knew all the words to stars are blind yes you would yes i totally would because i was singing along in the theater yeah i would definitely like suspect it was to win me over like it wouldn't be a serious thing but it would work and the fact that she knew that i was like okay this is something only a woman can write and direct so that would work but a guy saying he likes love actually i knew this was coming No, and here's why. So on that previous episode where I said that a red flag would be Love Actually or The Notebook, those are very standard examples. Stars Are Blind is in another realm where I think that you have to really be doing some work pop culturally to get and take seriously Stars Are Blind, Mm -hmm. a Paris Hilton song. I think that Bo Burnham's character was one of the most successful parts of the film. I definitely fell for him and fell for it, that Mm -hmm. what the setup was that Emerald Fennell bait and switched 
charged us with. I'm curious if you also were convinced and, and then surprised by where his character goes in the end. I don't know. It just, it all fits in what she's trying to accomplish here. Like he has to be this really likable guy and funny and we have to immediately be grabbed to him, but also feel like him in that we make mistakes and then we catch them and want to go back in time. And when we can't, which we also later learn, but he has to be very personable. When the big reveal came, I was surprised and disappointed. But then, and I think this is how she accomplishes what she's doing. I was like, are you kidding me? How did I fall for this? Like these guys are out in front of me Mm -hmm. all the time. Like these tricks are always here and I fall for them even while watching a movie. It was so annoying. So yes, I did fall for it. With Bo Burnham of all people. Not even Ben Affleck. I think that's also something that's so impressively done and timely is that, you know, he was there at this moment and was like, oh, this is fucked up. But he didn't say like, no, or shove the guy off of her or do anything. You know, he was like, we were children. And she was like, if I hear that one more time, like that was just so good. Yeah, that's the thing that keeps coming up. And they weren't kids, right? So they have all these different guys that I think she casts so well because you have Adam Brody, who we already have a relationship to from the OC, who's just, again, like a very typical type of guy who's like, seems like he's the good guy of the group, has like kumquat liqueur, like all these little details that you see are just so good. (laughs) The one who has the Fellini poster and who's working on a novel and you can see a David Foster Wallace book in the background. You're just like, oh my God, I'm going to get the one guy who wears the fedora and complains about surge pricing on the uber like they're so good it's like yeah. 1.2 it's like can you walk a mile yeah right it's like oh my god yeah so i really did love little things like that and at the bachelor party we also have two guys who if you've been watching tv have earlier relationships too so you have schmidt from new girl mm-hmm. and you have bash from glow who plays al who's mm-hmm. getting married Along with Fedora Man, he lives with his parents at home. And he's like, oh, when we get there, we have to be respectful and quiet. It's like, (laughs) what are you doing? But going back to (laughs) the Fellini, Coke-using, the misogynistic novel-writing man, who's played by Christopher Mintz-Plus, I think is an incredible moment in that scene in the direction where she's playing drunk and he goes to get her a glass of water and he like pecks her nose and says, oh, you're so beautiful and I love seeing women without so much makeup. Why do you always put so much makeup on? And he turns away for a second and she like gags so hard and the fact that it was Mm -hmm. right after that line i was like that is so perfect i think i love this movie so much for small moments like that because there are so many it's phrases that are specific but they're phrases that we've heard before and i think that really Mm -hmm. that worked as a viewer when i was watching those scenes to be like this is so relatable but then again feeling just like a sense of catharsis when she would confront them and scare them but i just i wanted more like i wanted i wanted a knife (laughs) I was going to say one other small thing. I liked Emerald Fennell's mm-hmm. cameo mm-hmm. and the little what she chose to cameo as the, as the, the YouTube video girl giving tips for the blowjob lips. Another favorite moment of mine is I think it's after she leaves Dean Walker's office. She wakes up in her car driving. She I stopped on a road. I did not get this at all. So <laughs> okay, I really ahead, don't. I'm, I'm happy to hear you explain. Okay. 
I'm glad you guys felt the same way because I don't know why she, you know, has passed out or something, but I think the scene tries to explain it in that after she bashes this guy's car, you see her standing in the road and she kind of like shakes and like wakes up from this trance that she's been in. So I wonder if that's another note of like being so engrossed by this past trauma that she almost like inhabits this other body or psychosis, which is what you're led to believe for part of the movie. I mean, at one point, the guy calls her a psycho. But I wonder if that's why, like, she was so taken over by what she just did to Dean Walker that she, like, blacked out. And then wakes up once she realizes she's, like, actually caused harm, not to the guy, but to the truck. And that that's what awakes her. It's just, this is the only instance of that happening in the movie. And there's no way to explain or understand it. I don't know. I was really confused by this scene. I think that one thing it does really well about trauma in the movie is, for example, when she hears that Al Monroe has moved back to Ohio. She thought he was in London and just like how the sound shifts and how it zooms in. You feel that trauma of, oh my gosh, this person who I despise and is the reason why all this trauma happened to my friend is back. What am I going to do with this information? It gets those points across really, really well. But then moments like the car, I was kind of so out of it and confused to the point where when it ended, I did think like, was that a dream? Because she doesn't usually exact a lot of physical violence or Mm -hmm. revenge tactics on people as far as we can tell, where I was like, is this something she just wants to do, but hasn't actually done it? I think it was just that like men have this terrible road rage and blow things out of proportion. I think that was the main takeaway and her dealing with that and kind of letting out some of her steam. I loved when she actually was smashing the car. And she's right. like, you have a tire I also iron? wanted more. <laughs> it's like, yes, smash the car. <laughs> yeah. Get him while you're at it. Let's separate the third act into two parts. So the bachelor party and yeah. then the wedding. How did you feel, both of you, about those parts? Let's start with the bachelor party. I mean, this scene starts with this toxic rendition, which is absolutely amazing. And on rewatch, it has more impact and like the shot of her walking up to the cabin and even coming from her car because this is the last we're going to see of her and the last that she'll see of daylight. I think that the bachelor party scene was Carrie's best sequence. I think it's one where she really gets to let loose and be very campy, but very seriously campy, very big. And when she's dressed up as this nurse clown stripper. <laughs> like Harley Quinn almost. Yeah. yeah. She's given the opportunity to deliver a big monologue. I actually think that the rest of the film kind of does a disservice to Carrie throughout most of it. I think she's held back. I think the edit of when she's pouring the shots and the close-ups of the eyes and the mouth and her mouth and blowing mm-hmm. the gum and pulling the glove from her hand. I think that is really cool. And it just, mm-hmm. it does build this intensity that I think we finally get your thriller moment here, Bennett, leading from this into the bedroom scene, yes. which mm-hmm. is great. And it is so intense. So I know a lot of people hate the ending, like hate it, especially like this part where she's killed. And I get that. And I understand why anyone would hate that. I had this emotional experience watching it. But Emerald lays out these little details that if you're paying attention when you're watching it, you do know that she's going to die. And one of them that I love, it's my favorite shot in the whole movie, is this 
close-up of Carrie, and she's at the coffee shop, and her head is kind of, like, tilted to the side, and she has this blue circular background around her, and Mm -hmm. blue halos Mm -hmm. in Christian iconography are for saints. And she has a lot of saint imagery throughout as trying to show Cassie as this saint-like character. And what ends up happening to saints, they're martyrs. They die for a cause. And that is what Cassie does. So if you, I think, follow those visual clues that she lays out, I thought that was really, really cool. And didn't put it together fully as to what it meant until... The ending, mm-hmm. I think that people, when they watch this, will toss around if that she's a martyr and whether or not this was a cause that she should have been taking on as her own. But I think that that's a way that Emerald was showing that and showing that fight that she took on. And ultimately, she ended up dying for it. That specific shot, I had thought about both times. And like, because the angle of the camera isn't mm-hmm. eye level, I was like, how do they pull the shot off? Because then when it cuts and... Ryan comes into the shot. Mm -hmm. Carrie is shorter than the circle. It's a beautiful shot. And I was like, what does this mean? So thank you for that. That totally makes sense now. Catholic schooling, you know. (laughs) (laughs) What do we think the significance is of her always having candy or some other type of sugar in her mouth? She always has either, there's gum at the end, but she's drinking juice boxes She's has candy cane and other she pops Twizzlers in her mouth all the time. I think Emerald again is like showing us that sugar doesn't give you any nourishment. Like sugar isn't good mm-hmm. for you. Everything that Cassie is doing is hurting her. Like she's it's kind of self-destruction. Yeah, self-destruction. We see the tallies in the notebook. Like she's been doing this for so long and she's still she hasn't learned from it. Like she hasn't mm-hmm. gotten to this this point that she's looking for. And can you ever get to that point by doing things like this? No. I think that's just another layer of that maybe. I think it's this arrested development that she's been placed in because she can't move on from this moment in her past and I think she's Still this 23-year-old who is not, again, a child, but she's regressed to always needing to find like a quick fix. So to finish off the scene, I did like that this culmination of the movie in us thinking, okay, how is she going to get back at Al? Is her inscribing Nina's name on his body? I thought that was like a great callback to the girl with the dragon tattoo. And I wish it had, but it doesn't. But I was in denial when this scene happened because it's a long take and it's like a slow zoom in as her body slowly dies. I was like, no, 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 she can't be dead. And then he wakes up the next morning. I was like, oh my God, this happened. You know, it's it's a bold move for a filmmaker. And obviously how Schmidt's character as a friend is like, oh no, this wasn't your fault, which it Mm -hmm. 100% was. Yeah, and I think too, like Emerald, she knows that we want Cassie to go there and to pick up that scalpel and go to town. But I think, again, if we've just been paying attention to what she's been showing us so far, I wonder like if she actually could have done that, which made me sad. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted her to be able to do that, but I, I feel like she couldn't. So then for it to end this way again is like men are always capable of violence and this world is cartoonishly wicked towards women 
And this just further drove that home. And again, I think with the the saint iconography and with, I think, her name too, Cassandra, again, Greek mythology, is the woman who tells truths and no one believes her. It's setting everything up to go there. And we just have been trained to accept Hmm. that it's not going to, but it does. So I was so shocked in the moment, but then I was just like, oh, it couldn't have gone any other way. I think like if you want a happy ending, it was not the movie she was trying to make. Yeah, it would have been more on a specific moment for this one character, not like for a universal theme. I agree that I'm happy it didn't end here. So this might be a good moment to go into the wedding. Mm-hmm. How did you guys feel about that? I have like very, very complicated feelings for how it actually ended. I didn't like that it ended on a winky face. <laughs> I wanted her to write something else in that moment, but I like how it was all pre-planned. The one thing that I really liked from the scene was that the woman police officer was the one to cuff and drag Al away. I think my eyebrows were raised through the whole wedding scene and as it cuts to the package being delivered to Alfred Molina's lawyer and the texts coming through. By this point, I'm kind of uh, firmly like, uh, it's set in my opinions of this movie by the end. So I was like, okay, sure, let's just, (laughs) she had a backup plan, cool, that was carried out. I I think the question is with the conversation about her being a martyr, Mm -hmm. that if there's also this and... I had a greater grand plan to get everyone in case I die and become a martyr. And it all goes smoothly without a hitch and it ends on a winky face. I think it was the literal winky face and then just the the whole scene being a winky face. I think I I was kind of like, "Mm, I don't know. I think her kind of giving everyone the justice that they deserve and that she wanted to serve to them that... I think I I don't have a problem with that being the ending, but there was a little bit of a like, okay, so what if you hadn't disappeared and the tape was still delivered to the lawyer? Were you planning to do this anyway? Which I I guess she was. At first I was just like, when the police go to Ryan, I was like, oh no, she threw her license plate out. Like she like stowed the keys, like all this stuff. Like they were never going to find her. Then I got kind of irritated by the wedding because I was just, I just thought like, okay, so now what this movie is saying is that for justice to be served two women have to die what is the point of this again and I I felt like the whole movie was setting it up for her to die and I got there and I bought into that and then I just thought about it more and felt worse about it I think it was just that men can find a way to throw anything under the rug and it's really up to the women to do the hard work to make sure that justice is served. Yeah. I just like don't want to. That's why I was annoyed because I was like, <laughs> I this like shouldn't be on women to right, have to do. Right. It was just one of those very frustrating experiences to unpack. If it had ended differently and she didn't have this grand backup plan and the police go and question Ryan and it doesn't go anywhere and maybe the movie ends with no one gets their comeuppance mm-hmm. and she's she has just died, would that have sat with you differently? Do, do we think it would have been more or less successful than having this big winky face? I think that that's where it ended in my mind was like, okay, the point of this movie is to say that men will continue to do these things to cover up for each other 
that it doesn't matter what we do, like this world will just always, it won't go in our favor. We can't teach men anything. They're not going to learn. Like they have to do the work on their own. That was the message I took away from the, the movie. And the ending with the weddings just have this like nice bow at the end of like, okay, this guy's going to jail on his wedding. This like stupid bride is like, what's going on? Was great. <laughs> but I think that what we know from that is like, how long will he go to jail? Does he have a great lawyer who can get him off? He already got the case settled before back in med school how will how will it handle it this Mm -hmm. time and maybe that is actually i think that viewing of the ending is working for me the old lawyer who has now reconciled with himself now has the video of the old rape which he can make public and they have her body and they're going to find his fingerprints on her so yes and no but i think in the end this final scene is just the cinematic ending she needed to like snap back and give it that sort of lift that I think a more serious ending would have had too different of an effect based on what the entire film was. So I think the message for me was the serious one, but I needed that final nudge mm-hmm. to be like, okay, she went full circle and did everything. Yeah. I needed it too. Like it was nice. I was like, okay, yes. Like here she is. She planned this. We're good. Overall, I'm excited for people to see this. I know that it's going to have a very polarizing response and reaction. Let's talk about awards. How do you guys think this is going to do outside of critics awards? I'm pushing for a Carrie nomination here for both Globes and Oscars. I think her potential within the acting community probably won't happen if we're talking like SAG, but I don't really see this in picture or director or any big Oscar categories, maybe with screenplay for being so Mm -hmm. satirical, but that's probably it because I know the Academy doesn't usually go for things like this. Right. I think the best chances are for Carrie and for screenplay are the the two races that it will stay in the conversation for i think director as well but i don't think that i think the screenplay is going to be because it's more provocative and more a topic of conversation i think that'll have more traction than her work as as the director of it i can't see a lot of academy members going for this we've talked about before how the screenplay award is for the cool movies And I think that this is a place Mm. maybe where this could work. I also think Carrie definitely has potential. She's been nominated before. She hasn't gotten any major nominations since in education 11 years ago. So there's maybe a bubbling up of goodwill towards her, but she's not coming off of a string of nominations Mm. that makes it seem like she's a favorite. And this is such a a big, bold role for her and a contemporary Mm -hmm. one twist. She hasn't been in a contemporary film since Shame in 2011. So I'm, I'm a big fan slash stan of Carrie Mulligan. Mm-hmm. I like her other performances better than this one, but I will not be upset if she gets a nomination. Well, thanks, Bennett, so much for coming back. This has been a much deeper conversation. Yeah, thanks again for having me. I'm excited to come back another time and keep chatting. I, I've liked talking kind of in detail about some movies with you guys, so I had fun. Thanks again. I feel like, yeah, we really went deep into promising young woman and all of the (laughs) things trying to unpack them so it was great having you here next time on oscar wilde nick and i will be counting down our top fives of 2020 i'm so excited to do this because i looked at my list which isn't finalized yet but quite a few of the movies on it we haven't really talked about in depth at all this year Mm -hmm. so i think it'll be a lot of fun and i'm wondering how much overlap we'll have at all totally and i posted my top 15 last week and it has changed tremendously in that week which is crazy so 
I'm excited to talk about top fives and then hopefully just some others that are up there Mm -hmm. that were really big for me, at least their impact. Thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you, Bennett, again for joining us. Stay safe and wear your masks. We'll see you next time. Thanks again, everyone, and Happy New Year. Stay safe and wear your masks.